0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Nash. In this episode, I talk with Josh Corman, co-founder of I Am the Cavalry and director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative for the nonprofit organization Atlantic Council. We discuss his recent work advising the White House and Congress on the many issues lurking in safety-critical systems in the healthcare industry, the misaligned incentives across healthcare, regulatory bodies, and the software industry, and the recent incident between MedSec and St. Jude's regarding their medical devices. Enjoy the episode. All right, Josh, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you. Um, To
0: introduce you to any of our listeners who might not know you, you are particularly known for something called I Am the Cavalry. Can you explain what that is?
1: Sure. In fact, we just had a big birthday. Um, Oh, well, happy birthday. (laughs) So we started it on August 1st. I'm one of the founders uh, with Nick Percoco. And what we realized was that um, I was growing deeply concerned about the relationship between technology and human condition, um, and more specifically about public safety and human life and the internet of things. And I kind of looked high and deep quietly after my career in the private sector to try to find the adults in the room and in government that might take these national security and public safety issues more seriously. And I naively believed if I got the right message, the right person, they'd just fix it. And after getting in high and deep as you can go, I kind of realized the cavalry isn't coming. Nobody's going to save us. Uh, and that was a sobering and depressing moment, but also an empowering one. So the idea was a couple months later, we went to DEF CON, the largest hacker conference in the world. And we said, hey, guys, the cavalry isn't coming. Uh, we need to be a voice of reason and technical literacy, be an ambassador and a helping hand to educate the public, the public policymakers and these safety-critical industries uh, so that we could be safer sooner if we work together. Um, So volunteer grassroots movement, uh, initially of white hat hackers, but now of many stakeholders in the overall ecosystem, concerned with public safety uh, issues in cars, medical devices, public infrastructure, and the internet of everything.
0: To that end, the organization has grown in in size and influence. you recently testified to the Presidential Commission on Enhancing Cybersecurity, right? Yes. So that's, that's no yes. small That's no small beans, I would <laughs> say. Um, and uh, so, I mean, that seems like the logical extension of where you started uh, from from the humble roots what, uh, of I am the Capital. What what was that all about? How did you end up, you know, testifying to the Presidential Commission? And and what came out of
1: that? Well, they're uh, they're not quite done yet. They did five cities. They picked. A- I think next week is the last of the five um, on various topics and subtopics, and there's some commissioners. And they're broadly looking at enhancing cybersecurity overall, but I think they got pretty far through, and they realized that there was very little content yet on public safety and human life issues. Um, So you mean,
0: like, so they're they're more focused on cybersecurity from the, uh, you know, sort of uh, privacy, people getting hacked, data breaches kind of thing, not so much the what happens if you're in an autonomous car and bad things
1: happen. Right, and, and some people did touch on it, but I think they wanted a, a very strong voice um, and they wanted some data. So they asked actually for a few things from me. They wanted to talk about software supply chains and software supply chain hygiene, and I've been working on that for a few years through my day job and through um, my old day job and through uh, the cavalry work. Um, when you look at things like Heartbleed, it's one thing when it you know you have to reset your password for Facebook, it's another entirely when it's in an industrial control system or in a hospital clinical environment, and it can't be patched, for example. Um, and they also want to talk about something like a food label or a nutrition label for IoT or for software. So you can tell, the free market can tell good software from bad software, or safe and patchable IoT from unpatchable. Um, and then the, clearly also public safety, human life things that um, myself and my cavalry teammates have been working on now intensely uh, for the last several years. But you know they're asking tough questions. Um, you know one of the things I ended up putting in there. Uh, I'll, 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 let me give you a few a few points from that. And mm-hmm. once I started writing, I had very little time to finish it, so I had to write it and send it, and then realize, oh, did I make a mistake? Oh. But
0: <laughs> that's <sounds> but,
1: <laughs> but I was pretty um, I was pretty blunt. Um, I essentially pointed out that a, a previous testimony from J.P. Morgan Chase said that they had over two thousand full time security people. And they spend over six hundred million dollars a year securing things, and they still get breached pretty routinely. And when you hear that statistic, it reminds me of something I wrote, which is that about a hundred of the Fortune 100 companies have had a material loss of intellectual property or trade secrets in the last couple of years. And pretty much every PCI compliant, you know, merchant or retailer has had a breach of credit card data. And Ashley Madison happens, and the Pentagon gets breached, and OPM gets breached, and and you start and now even since the testimony, you're seeing, you know you know, DNC and, and other government officials and election issues getting hacked. And, it's not and getting I,
0: better is what you're saying.
1: <laughs> I guess what I, I tried to assert is if you really take a step back strategically, one could argue that on a long enough timeline, our failure rate is 100%. And if we can't secure big banks with $600 million and and 2000 people, how do you secure a hospital with zero security staff and almost no security budget?
0: Or uh, yeah. whatever else. Yep.
1: Exactly. So I really focused this and grounded on where bits and bytes meet flesh and blood, and perhaps our best practices aren't nearly good enough. And what I really pointed out is we, you know, in many cases, we know what to secure and even how to secure it, but we lack the incentives to do so. And what they were scratching at, some of the commissioners are surprisingly, but it is encouraging. They're looking at it are really controversial ideas like software liability. Like one of the reasons we have such terrible software is there's really no penalty for, you know, building and shipping terrible software. hmm. And it's controversial because it's, you know, if you introduce something like software liability in a casual or cavalier way, you could destroy the entire software industry.
0: Right. Or, or you're talking about uh, random software engineers going to jail.
1: Yeah, that would be a huge mistake. Like if, right. if you were to prosecute the guy who introduced Heartbleed in the OpenSSL project, no one would ever contribute to open source again. And open source is 90% of commercial software. So that would be a... Huge mistake if it's introduced. But my belief, and the belief of several others, is that, including on the commission, is that um, we're going to have software reliability introduced through case law, where somebody's going to try to stand behind their end user license agreement in a court case. Let's say it's a car accident, right? And the judge is going to rule that the family's expect reasonable expectation that a defect in a a physical part of the car that causes harm is no different than harm caused by a software part in the car and they're going to overturn the EULA and through case law you're going to have software liability introduced and if we don't shape it and sculpt it in a way that is helpful and appropriate with economists and litigation specialists and software participants then we're going to have it do a lot of damage
0: well, I think the so, other thing about it is um the the speed at which things happen so when you think about liability right and you, or you think about regulation or any of those sort of governmental and legal, uh, you know, constructs, those don't change very quickly. Um, I was recently reading an article about testing and and automated cars. You know that we will literally not be able to put enough hours into testing these things to at some point decide they are. And I'm using air quotes here, safe mm-hmm. and. So how do you handle that? Like, how do you approach that? And, and one of the angles from this article was also talking about sort of the regulation side of it needs to be able to move more quickly. You know, so that's the piece that when you start talking about liability and law and those things, like, I don't think that stuff moves nearly as fast as the software industry does
1: either. Yeah. And I think there's intermediary steps you can do short of liability. So I don't want to suggest for a second that the whole commission or even my whole testimony was about liability. Um, one of the things I advocate for, well, I don't want to lose the liability threat either, all right, so a little bit more on liability. There's <laughs> well, different kinds. We can kind...
0: stack and come back to it if you need to.
1: <laughs> That's right. Uh, uh, one thing is our kind in the security research community, we're, we're pretty allergic to regulation at all right. uh, in general. And, and there's some healthy reasons for it. And one is what I'm you've scratched at, which is there's an impedance mismatch on the rate at which technology moves and the rate at which law moves or regulation moves. And I was a fierce critic of the PCI Council in the payment card industry for years because i said that you know you made a very static and brittle uh, checklist against a very dynamic and evolving problem space and it forces by the time the ink is dry it's already obsolete but instead of just being binary and saying all regulations good or all regulations bad i looked at the kind of things that i the attributes that you should encourage and if you can define the control objectives instead of the controls or if you can you know regulate the outcome Outcomes. instead of the yes. inputs they can be more evergreen And they can be more lasting. And then you're not telling people how to do it in the free market. You're just saying what's expected to be done. And if they can find an innovative or creative or cheaper or better way to meet those objectives, I I don't think the answer for safety-critical industries is no regulation. I think it's smarter, more evergreen, more control-objective-based than um, we've seen in other places.
0: Yeah, that's it's hard. It's a hard sell. I mean, like the impedance mismatch, as you mentioned, is one thing. But, you know, the designing for outcomes is just not uh, a strong uh, facet (laughs) of the of the legal uh, or, or, uh, you know, of those systems. So I I think that's a that's a hard road. But I think that's a
1: reasonable point. Um, But, you know, one concrete example, though, of something maybe in between, it's not actionable enough in the manifestation we did. And we did it that way on purpose. But when we wrote, the on our first birthday in the Cavalry, we published a five-star automotive cyber safety framework. And then this spring in January, I guess not January, uh, not spring, but in January, um, we published a Hippocratic Oath for Connected Medical Devices. And both of them, it's a framework for multi-stakeholder collaboration on five things. It says all systems fail. So in the, let's just pick the car one. We said, since all systems fail, um, how are you prepared for failure? And we have fancy names, but the unfancy names are Tell your customers how you avoid failure. Tell researchers you'll take help avoiding failure without suing them. How do you capture, study, and learn from failure in the car? How do you have a prompt and agile response or update to failure? And how do you contain and isolate failure? Uh, or basically, you know, a hack of the radio shouldn't be able to off the brakes, you know, critical systems and non-critical systems. And instead of telling people how to do these things, we just ask them to articulate them or have a plan. And you can have a maturity model against those things. But what it's done is it took an industry that said, oh, yeah, we're doing security. And then what what happened is you got to have deeper conversations about what are you doing for updates? What are you doing for segmentation isolation? Do you have coordinated vulnerability disclosure programs? Do you have bug bounties on those? And we've accelerated that safer, sooner outcome by convening these conversations between buyers, makers, suppliers, insurers, regulators, lawyers, et cetera, against that common framework. So... You don't have to go for something that says you must use antivirus, you know, which is does you know, might even increase your attack surface. But what you do is you cause necessary and vibrant conversations that might the implementations might change over time, but you're at least having the right discussion.
0: So back to the that feels I think we closed the loop enough on the liability side of things. Mm-hmm. Maybe, well, for now. <laughs> Not that you can really do that, but.
1: One more point about, on liability. The the people who hate regulation in theory may come to reflect on liability as maybe the most free market thing. Because what that says is, like, if you want to make your airplane out of balsa wood, <laughs> you can, <laughs> as long as you think that you'll keep them in the sky and no one will get hurt, right? So it'll, it, individual companies will make a risk decision based on how much is over-engineering the security and raising the price or delaying cost of goods and how much is under-engineering it. And you can buy insurance to cover your residual risks and have real meaningful insurance. And people usually have an incredibly negative reaction initially. But once you kind of hold your nose and eat your lima beans and you start to say, well, what happens next? You start to realize that, oh, you know what? If we could be held liable, maybe we won't use those vulnerable libraries. Or maybe we will have as many total lines of code. Or maybe we will introduce a sandbox so that if we're compromised, it can't do much damage after post-exploitation. Or maybe we have too many products and we should do fewer products and do a better job at that. Um and, and you start to make different decisions and then you buy insurance to cover your residuals and, and it not, it's not necessarily a bad outcome, but, right. uh, but I don't want to belabor the, the liability point.
0: Okay. Well, so back to this commission, I mean, again, we're talking to an audience of people who are probably pretty skeptical of, of governmental yeah. you know, commissions and what's going to come of that. I mean, where, where do you see that going? And in terms of the, the advice that you're giving them and what they're taking with that, what they're going to do with that?
1: Well, I tried to give them data and perspective versus, you know, knowing that I have the solution for things. Um, I hope that they do um, investigate and do a fresh analysis on the arguments for and against liability. Or I hope they do convene some workshops on how could it be introduced and, and how could you bound and scope the liability. I, I also hope that they they had several testimonies talk about the idea of food labels or nutrition labels or um, Mudge and, and Sarah Zetko are doing um, the CITL, which is the uh, what is it, cyber independent test labs where they're doing a score, like a FICO score on yep. software. Um, and, and I think as they absorb this and triangulate, maybe there'll be some sort of uh, project or initiative or grant or contest to look at what's an, a meaningful um, label to consu- for consumers to protect themselves and enable free market choice and, and risk decisions. And I don't think anyone has an answer to some of these hard things, but I was encouraged that they were asking hard questions and looking at new topics. And one of my favorite lines from testimonies, I read every testimony from Murphy City, this guy, Eli Sugarman from the Hewlett Foundation, uh, I think when they were on the West Coast, he said, you know, what we need is there's a bunch of topics on cybersecurity where the private sector won't do it and the public sector can't do it. And that's where we need to focus. And and he was articulating that's the role of philanthropic organizations and and nonprofits. But I also think that's kind of where we need to focus our energy in the next presidency. Because the easy cybersecurity stuff has been solved or is solved enough for the private sector to make money on it, um, we not we got to look. We're, we're past the low hanging fruit. We have to look at the really hard problems now.
0: So, uh, on similar lines, and bodies of government that people may or may not trust very much, uh, you, <laughs> <laughs> you're also on the the cybersecurity task force for Congress, the HHS one. Mm. Um, what what's that about, and how? I don't know, how long have you been doing that? And, and where is that going?
1: Um, I don't know if you saw my tweet the other day, but I I said that uh, being on the Health and Human Services Task Force might be bad for my health. Um, <laughs> I, I <laughs> uh, can only a, imagine. <laughs> we have one year to produce six uh, things that the, the CISA Act of 2015 asked for. And it's an amazing group of people. It's a, it's a diverse group of stakeholders. I'm blown away by how impressive and passionate these folks are. Some of them are from large health delivery organizations and small. Some are large device manufacturers and small. I was really impressed. They wanted the researchers' voice there through, through the cavalry and through me. We have a privacy advocate. Um, you have Underwriters Laboratories there, a NIST person. It's, it's a pretty mind-blowingly good team. And you know, we're, we're looking at the real issues and we're getting past the superficial stuff like just using this cybersecurity framework and just call it a day. Um, so we know it's a target rich environment that's resource poor. We know that um, 75% of the space is small and medium health delivery organizations that don't even have a necessarily a single security person on staff. And what I really tried to ground it with is, you might recall, this was passed in December, but Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital was taken offline. Uh, they had to divert ambulances to other facilities because of a piece of ransomware that kind of randomly found its way into their organization. It wasn't even a targeted attack, it just did damage nonetheless. So I kind of use this as a chance to really make sure we don't give platitudes after a year of just navel gazing. And we've really grounded this in some ground truth and ugly truth that we have, we're kind of upside down in our mortgage. It's like the, you saw the big short, we're, Mm-hmm. We've, we've got a subprime mortgage crisis coming and a compound derivatives problem, and we've bought more tech than we can possibly safely and soundly operate, uh, and it's overconnected. And just so, yeah, as a proof point that I'm not a huge fan of arbitrarily doing um, government regulation, I actually put on the table something really unpopular in the very first meeting. I, there's this thing called meaningful use in the hospital environments that I think it was part of the Affordable Care Act. Maybe it was the High Tech Act. But they tied reimbursement for medical investment to this thing called meaningful use. And essentially what they wanted to do was encourage us going from paper records to electronic records. And so they essentially took a whole bunch of medical devices that were never threat modeled, designed, architected, implemented to be connected to anything. Oh, God. and, And forced them to be connected to everything. So you have a whole bunch of like a gear that has no business being connected, and we connected everything to everything else. And what that means is, even if you have that two thousand person security staff that is used to securing a bank or J.P. Morgan Chase, they can't possibly achieve the same level of network security that they could in a banking environment because of the unintended consequences of meaningful use. So, what I want to make sure we do is we surface the ground truths, we identify the constraints. And we try to make sure that we don't make things worse as we head to precision medicine, which is the idea that not only do we have electronic health records, but that they're compatible, interoperable, and you can start doing machine learning and solve cures and notice epidemiological problems. So long answer is, in the process of getting really grounded and gritty, we're chasing rabbits down the rabbit hole. And it goes a lot further than I think anybody has realized. And there are some seemingly intractable. Problems in this long tail of um Windows XP and legacy outdated unsupported operating systems being the overwhelming majority of the equipment in these hospitals, and they have scant security talent and budget and resources to even operate the old stuff. So it's pretty ugly.
0: I, I mean, <laughs> I'm really depressed now, by the way. Um <laughs> but you must have a harder time sleeping at night. I, How do you, I mean, are you just picking up rocks at this point right now? Is that where you're at with this or?
1: Well, there's several parts of the task force and we have those six deliverables and we're either leading or serving on several subgroups. And while we ostensibly meet once a month, we have weekly and even more frequently than weekly meetings, depending on which test subgroup we're on. But, you know, one of the rabbits I've been chasing on my own is, so you look at the XP problem, because even if we gave you perfect wave a magic wand and all the new technology is perfect, right? It's designed sure. better. It's
0: <laughs> live in that unhackable, that sounds great.
1: <laughs> but, but there's still windows XP in these environments. And when I asked if we gave you perfect new stuff tomorrow, how long would it take you to rotate out the old stuff? I asked the hospitals in the room and I said, 10 years is easy. So I've been tasked and focused on how do you deal with the leg? I'm going to put in scare quotes XP, but how do you deal with the legacy XP problem? And after a lot of digging, I'm just going to sprinkle a few data points at you. One of the things one of my deputies, uh, Bo Woods, came up with, he's been with the Cavalry since day one. He said, well, you know, why don't we do like a cash for clunkers like we did for cars? Like, why don't we do a buyback program one time and um, incentivize getting rid of old, older unsafe gear? And I'm like, oh, that's a cool idea. And then we start talking to hospitals and they said, well, yeah, that would help some of our gear if we could even afford it. But we also I mean, if, if the government could afford that and the economics from there, but there's a bunch of stuff we can't get rid of because it's directly attached to this very large device that has to be here for 15 years for, to justify its cost.
0: Like a giant magnet or something.
1: Yeah, like a yep. pro, pro, you know proton accelerator or right. whatever. Then I start looking for creative solutions to hardening legacy operating systems at their runtime. And I find a few of those and then we realize, oh wait, If we're draining the swamp of legacy, is the FDA really filtering out new XP from, I mean, newly approved devices with old legacy operating systems or not? And then we look closer at that and you start to realize that by the time you bring your, you know, let's say Windows 11 comes out tomorrow and you start, you and I start a company to make a medical device tomorrow. It may take four years of R&D. We might go through clinical trials. We might get it to our 510K submission to FDA and then it's already near its end of life again. So we start realizing there's structural problems where if you're going to use commercial operating systems in a durable good. So if the if the OS is supposed to last, you know, five to ten years and the durable good is going to last fifteen to twenty years, you got a structural problem. <laughs> and then the one that gave me a heart attack more recently is we, we started to realize is while I'm tackling the legacy XP problem, a ton of new innovators are building on really old, really insecure versions of Android instead. Why? <laughs> because it's cool, it's free, it's open, there's a large developer population, tablets are under $10 per when you buy them in bulk from China on pallets and oh, and it's I almost had a heart attack because I said, you know, the current version of X, of Android I just saw on that new device this week is less defensible than the XP I'm trying to get rid of because <laughs> at least XP went through the Melissa and the I love you and the you know, Blaster and Welchia, and Nachi and Slammer and they got religion and then the Bill Gates memo. And, and, you know, I think Android can get to a point and it's getting to a point where you might be able to lock it down, but maybe never high assurance enough for say uh, an infusion pump that could kill you. Um, when you so, talk about an
0: impedance mismatch, right? You're talking uh, about, you're talking about, uh, uh, industries like healthcare that are, everything's dependent on software now. And those two places don't, they don't even exist in the same like universes.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I I bet you if I were to go talk to my friends at Android on the Android team, they'd probably have a heart attack to find out people were using their stuff in a safety critical environment. So we've got some, there's so many aspects to this. We want to educate the public. We want to work with the regulator. We want to incentivize higher assurance operating systems. We want to wean out elective attack surface. Um, But at the moment, you asked, are we just turning over rocks? I think... I would like to say we're at the point where we, we've identified all the surprises and now we're just going to try to tackle them. But I think we're still uncovering some surprises. Yeah. Oh. I, do ha- I do have good ideas though. You know, you talk to really smart people like in the O'Reilly, you know, a lot of, a lot of the people you have in the O'Reilly Security Conference uh, Program Committee, you know, I sometimes mind meld with them when you can start to encourage and foster the defenders in the community, we have a lot of breakers. But when you look at the defenders, they're, in, they're adopting things like rugged DevOps or they're doing things like secure yeah. design or wow. they're doing threat modeling or we're looking at the economics of security.
0: Yeah,
1: um, you I, know, yeah, I'm I, trying to come up with good things like maybe we develop a high assurance version of Android for safety critical or maybe we start encouraging a reference architecture so that durable goods can swap out the OS. They're loosely coupled the OS instead of dependent on the OS and things like that.
0: Okay, so one, one more doom and gloom uh, question. <laughs> are, are we going to have to have some kind of Manhattan project incident to make people really change
1: on this front? Um, that's a common theme. If you look at the public testimonies from the presidential commission, many of the cities and many of the testimonies they asked for hinted at the need for some sort of, they call it like a moonshot. Right. or, um, a space race as opposed to, you know, making a nuke. <laughs> um, but I do think in some cases, um, I don't want to swear on your podcast, but you, can, you know, I do it all the time. So, <laughs> well, I watch the Martian, right. Yes. And, and it's like, uh, I've always had this phrase that I use that said, when you're a little bit behind, you work harder, but when you're really behind, you have to work smarter and necessity is the mother of invention. But when I watch the Martian, I'm like, um, you know what, for some of these things, we don't know what to do. So we're going to have to science the, you know, poop out of it. The shit out of them, you can say it. <laughs> I think I dropped
0: um, so, an F-bomb on the first podcast and they haven't <laughs> made me stop yet, so.
1: But I, I think that's part of it. But also on record in, the, in my testament, I said, you know, for some of these things, we know yeah. what the fix is. Like, you know, I know O'Reilly's big into AppSec and yeah. application security and application development, DevOps. And we actually know how to completely eliminate SQL injection. We know how but we don't do it. So I, I actually, that's why I got to things like software liability and software transparency and things. I think in some cases we have technical solutions. We lack the incentives and the, and and the political will. Um,
0: you keep coming to that word. You keep saying that word. You're like the Inigo Montoya of security. Which one? Um, It's incentives, but it It it, is, it, it it is absolutely. Um, you know, and, and, and the hard part is that, how varying they can be given the people, the environment, the context, like those incentives can be, and and they can be wildly misaligned. So there's no, there is no clear cut, you know, clear cut one way of approaching this, especially across different industries.
1: Well, hopefully so you can sleep well this weekend. Let me try to take some pressure off. Um, okay. We don't have to necessarily make perfect software because I don't think that's ever possible. But when you look at, if you were to make a matrix of adversaries and capability, you know, if you wanted to say, can we make you know medical gear that the, the Russians can't hack? The answer is no. And, and it would not be cost effective to, to try. Um, but what I'm more concerned about is accidents and adversaries that are, one way you put it is if you make an axis of what's their capability on one axis and what's their intent um, on another axis. Um, I'm very concerned. I actually put in my testimony, I'm concerned about low capability, high intent adversaries. Um, The one that's a concrete example, we already talked about Hollywood Presbyterian, but I researched Anonymous for a few years um, with Jericho. And when we were doing so, I said, look, I'm less concerned about Anonymous and more concerned about what comes next and what the branches and sequels look like. And while everyone thought it was a hacking collective, there were actually very, very, very few hackers in the global movement. But one of the hacking crews was called Team Poison. And one of the hackers in Team Poison went by the handle of Trick. And Sometime um, after our research was done, he left his cushy home in Birmingham, UK, joined ISIS, moved to Raqqa, Syria, and was recruiting people and training them on not just social media and propaganda, but also on uh, you know, shodan and metasploit and really low-hanging fruit, low-skill attacks, but they're sufficient enough to do serious damage. Like when I talk about there's not a single security professional at a, a small and medium hospital, that's 75% of our hospitals. You don't have to do anything more than use Shodan to find an exposed service or vulnerability. In fact, the, the thing that took out Holly Presbyterian was a JBoss flaw. Mm-hmm. So I, I showed some some government people. I, said, I pulled up Shodan without even paying for it, just the free search. I searched for JBoss, and the first couple of hits in, in our proximity were um, hospitals. Yeah. And they had the vulnerable version. So what I I think the, the solace here is, when you look at someone like Trick, who we did kill with a drone strike last uh, August, but you look at someone like him as an existence proof of someone that means motive and opportunity to hurt um, the public through this irrational dependence on connected technology and safety critical spaces like hospitals. Um, I don't think we have to make perfect things. I think what we have to do is drain the low hanging fruit and the hygiene issues. Because if you can raise the bar high enough that we get rid of the, the, the high intent, low capability adversaries... You know, you're never going to stop Russia or China from being good enough, but at least they're rational, and we have norms and treaties, and mutually assured destruction, and economic sanctions and whatnot. I'm more concerned about the people lay outside the control uh, or the reach of deterrence. And what we want to do is get to that eighty twenty rule or the balance point where the really reasonable stuff, like no known vulnerabilities, <laughs> and uh, and make your goods patchable. At least equip us to stop to shield ourselves against the whims and will of uh, these more uh, extreme adversaries. So we don't have to boil the ocean, just raise the tide line enough.
0: That's not going to help me sleep better this weekend, but (laughs) I appreciate it. Um, Let's move on to something way less controversial, like the MedSec Muddy Waters short.
1: The MedSec Muddy Waters short of St. Jude's vulnerable pacemakers? Not at all controversial.
0: Uh, And I'm Uh. sure, you know, but I, you, you, this is in your space. And we are talking about exactly, um, exactly the kinds of things that you were talking about, but this is a very different approach to this problem. And it's a, and when when you want to talk about incentives, um, this is certainly one way of uh, providing a set of incentives. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm just going to throw that up in the air, like as it's a huge softball and I'm not going to try to direct what, you know, where you're going to go with that. But I'm curious what, what your take is on this at this point. I mean, we don't have a lot of facts. We're not dealing in a land of facts with this stuff right now. Like we're dealing in a land of emotions and opinions
1: at this point. Right. I mean, I could certainly talk to certain aspects of the story, but you're right. There's, there are disputed facts. Um, and now it's going to a court, uh, to court. So it'll be a while probably before we get more facts revealed, but Oh, so one thing I should caveat is that um, to quote Katie Mazuris and Art Mannion, who work on the ISO standards for coordinated disclosure, um, or for vulnerability disclosure, um, reasonable people can disagree on disclosure. Um, as we're seeing with this top story, unreasonable people can also disagree. Uh, <laughs> I can at least tell you a few things, facts, I guess, if people don't know it, and then give you some of my take and my preference. Um, disclosure issues are not new. There's been disclosure wars for over 20 years. Um, there's been a history of what the considered best practice and best wisdom has been over those 20 years. Um, I think we're in a newer era, though, and and I I approach it differently. In fact, I've changed some of my beliefs over time because now that the consequences of failure involve public safety, human life, national security, physical damage, you know, the the act of disclosing something on a website that can be fixed tomorrow um, or tonight, in fact, a DevOps shop can be fixed in an hour, maybe, um, is materially different than something that might require surgery to fix, yeah. or that might cause a loss of life, or could shatter the public confidence in other otherwise life-saving technologies. So I think it requires great care, and in case we don't get to much discussion on this, on the I am the Cavalry site, we actually wrote a position on disclosure a while back for different reasons, and the very first sentence is me Bastardizing some Nietzsche quote, and I essentially said those concerned with public safety and human life should take sufficient care not to inadvertently put them at risk. And in that overall disclosure position, we suggest you know some conscientious behavior on the part of the the bug finder, on the part of the manufacturer, and on the part of the public. So we we realize this is a shared responsibility, and we should measure twice, cut once when the consequences of failure are so severe. Um, So in general. Conventional wisdom at this point in history says that when a disclosure, when a, someone, a researcher finds a flaw, they typically tell the research, the, uh, the affected manufacturer um, to give them a chance to fix it. Um, there's less adversarial relationship in 2016 than there had been in others, but it's not perfect and it's not evenly distributed. And failing that, at least for safety critical industries, you tend to go to Department of Homeland Security's ICS CERT or Industrial Controls CERT uh, or CERT CC. Um and then in this particular case, since it's medical, people sometimes go to the Food and Drug Administration, who's the regulator of jurisdiction here. And breaking from that normal um, expectation, um, MedSec found some flaws in the St. Jude's Pacemaker and a couple of related devices in that overall um, technology solution. Uh, and instead of bringing it to any of those three parties, they went to Muddy Waters Capital and licensed with some terms that I don't know if they're public, um, the technology and, and they, the, the, world kind of found out about this through on, you know, through Bloomberg on the news on an interview and, um, no, it scared a lot of people. Um, yeah it's, yeah,
0: it's scary. I mean, I think the argument there, right. If I were to, if I were to sit on the other side and argue what some of the thinking, I don't think all of it, there's, there's weird economic things going on there too. Right. But that the argument one could make is you you laid out those shared interests, right? Those shared groups. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, one could argue that 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 none of those are are working in this case, right? I mean, that that's some of the argument, right? Was that um, was that St. Jude's had not been, you know, supposedly receptive to these kinds of things. And I think yeah. taken in a vacuum, that could seem possible at the very least, right? One could argue that all those that shared overlapping, you know, set of interests was failing to protect people when you know the right things weren't happening in that
1: case so okay. i understand that perspective i have a different take yes and by the way i'm not on anyone's side here I, I think there's been mistakes on the part of most parties in this um and i'm sure i've made mistakes on this as well um what i will say i'm trying to be very careful here what i will say is I think some context is necessary. So regardless of the veracity of the findings, because the veracity of the findings are in dispute, regardless of if you think it's moral to make money off of these things or not, I don't, I'm not even weighing in on that right now. And regardless of if you think it's legal or should be legal to do shorting on safety critical industries, I'm not even weighing in on that right now. So if we can separate those three aspects there's been so much discussion about who's to blame here. Um, but there've been stunning little discussion about the the effect on patients and on safety. So I'm in this opinion now I'm giving, so I tried to give you an, you know, the framing before, but now I'll give you my, my opinion and some context. Um, I'm, you know, we started, I am the cavalry to, to be protectors, to focus in that and push for safety. So from a safety lens to optimize for safety, um, I think it's hard to argue that the safest thing for the customers um, is to tell every adversary on the planet before the cus- the patients or the doctors who care for those patients or the regulator who regulates the care for those patients had a chance to get ground truth, triage, form a plan, communicate the plans, and manage expectations so that a thoughtful, planful, unemotional response can be done when the, the, the information comes to light. And so in more cases than not, I'm sure there will be exceptions. And then back to the point the, the caveat that reasonable people can disagree. My belief is that the safest outcome will factor all relevant stakeholders. And I have seen almost no press that even factors for the impact on patients. Yeah. And so I want to be a voice personally and I want the cavalry to be a voice that cares about the, the protection of the affected patients and for safety as a principle.
0: Right. Same, and to get back to what you were saying earlier about when yeah. designing and incenting for outcomes. Yeah, I mean, if you are thinking about it in terms of safety as an outcome, then if you if that is really what you are optimizing for, um, right? Then then uh, even if reasonable people could disagree, they're very different.
1: Ways. But that's not the mission of Money Waters. The Mission of Money Waters is to
0: well, they got ma- in,
1: maximize right? revenue, right? Yeah. Um, well, now what willi-
0: I they were a willing partner.
1: Yeah. Now. Let me say the context that I think most people are missing, and I don't even know how much of this has made it into, it into the press articles. This is not to excuse it. It is to explain it. Let's call it the before times. Up until recently, only two years ago in July, did the FDA issue their pre-market guidance on cybersecurity for medical devices. And only this January did they issue their post-market guidance, which isn't even official yet. It's, it's still the draft and the comment periods closed, but I suspect by the end of the year, you'll see their official guidance for post-market. Uh, And the difference between pre and post in a nutshell is pre-market says you must do these things before you can bring a new product to market. And the post-market guidance is the ongoing care and feeding expectations for good hygiene and maintenance for the lifespan of until it's destroyed. And so there was a long before times when there was zero recognition of the problem and zero guidance from the regulator, uh, and therefore very bad activity and practices in the design, implementation, and approval of medical devices. And I am deeply concerned about it, so deeply concerned about it. We started I Am The org, and I left the private sector to go to work for a, a nonprofit to do this full time. So I am deeply concerned about the before times. And if you look at that as the current state before any guidance, there has been a massive awakening and attitudinal shift in the on the part of the regulator and the manufacturers. And they are currently pivoting from the before times to, to the necessary desired state. But there's a long gap in between, between current state and desired state. And uh, the products coming out right now are still, you know, were already built before the awakening. So I'm going to pull this all together now. Thank the... the oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> the... The current state of legacy medical devices, including but not limited to St. Jude, are well below the standard that I think they need to be. And there are sufficient risks, there are lots of risks in current legacy medical devices that went through the before times. And the method and manner with which we disclose those vulnerabilities can increase patient risk. It's an and. So the polarizing is what's been unhelpful. The Cavalry has researchers, and I'm not saying you have to do it our way, but our position is um, we have a bunch of researchers, including a a pacemaker patient herself who's amazing, Marie Mo. She is a PhD in cryptography. She ran Norway's CERT. And at some point during that, she woke up in a hospital bed with a pacemaker at a very young age because she had a heart condition. And now more recently, she's also become an embedded device researcher and she and some of the other cavalry folks are doing an extended project on embedded medical devices. And they are finding a lot of things and they are quietly and collaboratively communicating a lot of things. And they are accelerating the realization of that desired state from between the before times and the future times. Now, there are other methods and reasonable people can disagree on how to get there. But I want to bookend this. When we started the cavalry, I said a few things that are material to this conversation. I said, Look, for, we've had a 20-year stalemate of being a pointing finger at past failures and having an antibody response and a stalemate with the industries that we bring these issues to. Let's try not to be a pointing finger at past failures, but a helping hand at future success. And to punctuate it, I said, I have no interest in finding and fixing one device, one bug in one device from one manufacturer. We need to hack the industry and hack the incentives, and we need to fix the whole problem.
0: Yeah, that's the thing that really yeah. startled me the most about this was... It might have been perceived as an expedient way to try yeah. to jump around some of the existing problems, but those existing problems are born of humans. Yeah. And you cannot change human behavior um, by short, you can't short human behavior.
1: Well, I think one thing that is probably true is there are probably legitimate bugs found. So even though there's a dispute, there are probably legitimate bugs there. Um, the question becomes with the ground truth. Would the doctor and the patient choose to do a surgery to remove that? And it did the act of public and sensational revelation increase the likelihood of adversaries taking advantage of that flaw?
0: Large systemic consequences.
1: Yeah. And moreover, if you look at this at a macro level, when I say I want to fix the whole industry, um, we've had unbelievable success between Katie Mezurs and Art Main's work on ISO and other, other efforts, between Jen Ellis and others trying to fight for uh advocacy for researcher rights we've worked we a bunch of us have collaborated on getting the DMCA the digital Women right. and copyright act to have exceptions to allow for hacking to be legal for research purposes for medical devices and um and for vehicles that kick in in October in just a couple of weeks so it's no longer a federal crime to do so we've worked with the department of justice to give them more tolerant uh prosecutorial discretion on white hat researchers you saw the pentagon issued the first ever Bug bounty, not only acknowledging the value of white hat research, but rewarding it. You're seeing GM and other car companies introduce this. Uh, several of us participate in the US Commerce Department's NTIA open workshops on voluntary coordinated disclosure best practices. And I run the safety critical working group for that. So you're seeing the tide turn from a very real risk that white hats would be completely criminalized to a massive embrace that it's not just a pointing finger at past failure and a researcher of the threat, but rather that The researcher is a vitally necessary teammate. It's in the coordinated, it's in the um, Hippocratic Oath and the Five Star. And in fact, the FDA is in their post market guidance is strongly advocating for high trust, high collaboration with White Hats. And in the context of all this sea change from seeing us as enemies to vitally necessary teammates to make their customers safer, and as they're taking our advice, stories like this scare the legal teams and the shareholders and might might make researchers once again look like a threat. And that's going to happen, and different people are going to use different methods and approaches, especially if they're within the bounds of the law. But I want to advocate for, I believe, and I think there's sufficient evidence, that high trust, high collaboration uh, between willing allies has materially improved and accelerated them turning the corner from the before times to the desired state. And we're not done. There's several years to go. And if, 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 they are still found to be... um, beyond the pale and not to be making the sufficient changes, then the market and, you know, some combination of regulatory pressure and other things should fix that. I left out one really, really key wake up call, which I think there's been some misinformation on the story. Last summer, right before DEF CON, uh and drug infusion pumps got essentially a recall and there was no guidance on what the FDA would count as a recall worthy event, but they got a safety communication telling hospitals to cease using those bedside infusion pumps because they had an unmitigated pathway to harm. And people prior to that thought that they were going to have to do, um, have proof of harm before there would be a recall. And part of our collaboration and translation and being more of a teammate than a threat got them to change their policy. And now it's being baked into the postmark guidance. But for them to say, you need to have a shock to the system like a shareholder event to get them to care, um, we already had board level discussions after Hospira in nearly every device manufacturer because they realized at that point that an unmitigated pathway to harm would get have a really severe commercial impact. So the assumption that this was the only way to change the nature of the conversation is ignorant of what has already happened at the board level. Uh, once the FDA finally took that very courageous stance, and I'm not going to talk about this forever, but one more thing that is a bit frustrating, and I don't know how it's going to come out in the lawsuit. But inherent in most of the narrative as to why they felt this was necessary was the belief that um, St. Jude's has a proven track record of not doing these things right. And yeah, I, I've had I se- to
0: that early on, yeah,
1: yeah. But I've had several journalists ask, and then are, therefore I started asking. I pretty much know or know people who know every single medical device researcher, and we haven't found a single person who's had a bad experience. With St. Jude's, nor has the FDA, nor DHS, ICS CERT, nor CERT CC ever seen a shred of evidence that they've been difficult to work with. And that includes the late Barnaby Jack, whose teammates that were around him when he was working on pacemaker research. So if a lot of this is predicated on that assumption, I, I don't know what's going to happen in the court case, and I don't even want to speculate. But what I what I do believe is, even if reasonable people can disagree about telling the manufacturer, and even if that trust isn't sufficient yet, we're in a transition period and I think and I'd like to advocate for the right thing to do is to at least tell the D- DHS assert cert or FDA on something that could affect public safety and human life so that we can get ground truth and give solid actionable safety recommendations before they hear about it on the news. Um, and I don't know that you can ever control the actions of others, uh, but I hope this do- doesn't get, uh, repeated, um as a tactic. And I'm not even sure it's going to financially pay out for the parties involved anyhow. But I, I hope that what we can realize is if we can maintain the trust of these safety critical industries, we probably stand a better chance of elevating and and guiding them towards safer practices on all their current and future devices.
0: I think that's a good note to leave it on. I might be able to sleep better after that. <laughs>
1: This is not going to be quick fix. And no. and I do, are. I do lose sleep over this stuff, but I know that it's going to be a better and faster fix if we are working together than if we have an adversarial relationship.
0: I couldn't agree more. Okay. So at the end of every podcast, I ask everyone the same question, um, because I believe when you talk about not being adversarial, but working together, uh, that we all have secret superpowers <laughs> and I want to know what your secret
1: superpower is? Oh, you asked me this once before. I, I don't think anybody can see their own superpower. Um,
0: that would be a superpower. <laughs> be a meta superpower.
1: <laughs> That's um, what I'm here
0: for. I will, I will pull it out of you. So I
1: think it's somewhere in between. I'm really good at pattern recognition across really large systems, like seeing how things flow together. Um, and that, you know, you typically can unveil new insights or harder to see spot ones. Um, but also, I think more recently I've become a really good ambassador or translator. You can take the techno babble from the technically elite community and translate it into the right words for a policymaker or for a device manufacturer or for regulators. So I, think, I think we need a lot more translators uh, and ambassadors. So, somewhere between uh, pattern recognition and ambassador.
0: I like that. I like that. Um a, a meta translator. All right. So that is a, a babble fish. We a babble need a babble fish. fish. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> I hope that's not my superpower.
0: Oh, uh, I don't know. I won't knight you that. So oh, we'll go with we'll go with uh, translator, ambassador, pattern matcher. That's really good. I'd take that any day.
1: Not All to right. mention pattern recognition is a really good book. <laughs>
0: that's true.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining me
1: today, Josh. Thank you
0: thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Courtney Nash and Josh is at Josh Corman. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode.